0: Pantheon Podcast presents Deeper Digs with host and rock and roll archaeologist Christian Swain Music Culture Technology And rock and roll Now, on with the show
1: I feel the earth move under my feet. I feel the sky tumbling down. I feel my heart start to trembling whenever you're around, diggers. Why? Well, because I dig all of you. That's why. And besides, I get to quote both James Taylor and Carol King, the authors of that particular song. And why those lyrics? Well, because our special guest today played on this song, from the 1971 Monster album, Tapestry. We will get to meet uh, Russ Kunkel in just a minute. Okay, what's going on at Pantheon? Well, a lot. Uh, A lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. A lot of Secret Squirrel stuff. Uh, Can't go into detail except to say we are working with a couple of companies that are going to be big help uh, to us uh, in getting to the next level. Uh, All are, um, well, uh, either in the music space, the music technology space, um, podcasting, obviously, um, space, uh, and all are great friends to have, I can assure you. Uh, There's a lot of interest in uh, music-related podcasting right now. And hey, you know, we are the MTV of podcasting, so all this will make sense uh, in the end. No, uh, we are not getting bought, uh, at least not at the moment, Uh, but we are finding ourselves in some um, rarefied air, uh, might be a good way to put it, all of which is good for you diggers and for all of our shows. Now, uh, I I might say um, we appreciate all the help uh, on Patreon and PayPal, thank you thank you thank you all of you who have been helping out financially uh, over the years uh and we know who you are uh and also those of you who just you know tell your friends to to check out pantheon to listen to deeper digs rock and roll librarian rock candy um uh, shout it out loud uh, uh uh miss p's pajama party the devil's music uh, our muses, um, tripping to my roots, uh, geez, 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 all kinds of stuff, uh, and a brand new show. I just got word this morning that it was approved. All good, everything's good. I'm, I, I, I'm going to save it for next week to to tell you all about it. Um, we're very excited about uh, about this. We got a couple of new shows in a pipeline that uh, are really, really. Um, just, I think you guys are really going to dig this. So, anyway. Just want to say thank you uh, for those who have supported us um, this far. And I'm going to add a little wrinkle uh, for those of you with means uh, and maybe want to think big. We are now taking angel type investment from friends and family. And well, you guys are friends and family. Uh, I can't say much here, but if you are interested, contact us at archaeologyproject at gmail.com. Just send us a note uh, saying, hey, uh, heard what Christian said on Deeper Digs, uh, and um, you know I'm interested in talking further, and we can send some information. Um, you know, if you sincerely want to know more and might be interested in helping us in a bigger way, that is, uh, you know, from from there, we can send you details and, and, and talk in, in more depth on that. Uh, I can't say more than that here. OK, so let us know if you're interested in um, somehow investing in a music oriented uh, podcast company. So, well, media company, I should say, because we're even more than just about podcasts. Okay, that's it for now. That's the business. Short and sweet. Let's get to the show. I feel- another legend sits down with us today. This is my second foray into the world of the immediate family band. Uh, we first had Leland Sklar, uh on a few weeks back, and we still have Danny Korchmar, Waddy Wachtel, uh, and Steve Postel uh, coming up over the next several weeks. But today, it's all about the man on the throne, behind the kit, laying down the groove, Russ Kunkel. A Pittsburgh native who moved to L.A. at age nine, he picked up the drums after hearing Wipeout by the Safaris. And, well, that was it. Uh, He was on his way. By 1970, he hooked up with Sklar and James Taylor, who had Carol King playing piano, and uh, ended up on a couple of classics right away uh, with Bob Dylan, Odetta, and B.B. King. Uh, He... um, Wound up in the section with Danny and Leland, along with Craig Durge, uh, who did have three records uh, to their own name, but really all the guys were first call studio cats in the 70s, and and that's their real claim to fame. Uh, And like uh, Leland, uh, Russ was on Running on Empty, uh, that original live album by Jackson Brown, of course. Uh, The list of names is, um, uh, if I go through his discography, is beyond comprehension and would take me days to list off. Seriously. Basically, if it had that
2: 70s L.A. sound, Russ is probably on it.
1: In the 80s, he and most of the other guys uh, were still the people you call. Uh, he joined uh, the Stevie Nicks solo train uh, and played on a lot of the Gypsy Queen's songs along with Waddy. And let's not forget all the Linda Ronstadt albums, uh, including the just-released Live and Hollywood album, From 1980 uh, with with Danny. And in fact, uh, boy, just go. uh, Interesting about these guys, you know, they could do it recording and then they could just jump out on the road and um, and um, and do it live. Uh, And you'll hear and I think this is said several times by the guys, you know, they all chalk that up to Peter Asher. And um, Peter's insistence that, uh, geez, you know, if you're the guys who make the album, you're the ones who should go out on the road. Great, great genius strike, strike of of genius right there, uh, without doubt. Um, And guess what? Russ even worked with Tripping on My Roots podcast host on Pantheon, Jesse Colin Young. Uh, And the guy joined Spinal Tap. What's not to love? Now, Russ isn't, um, you know, a bombastic show-off type of drummer. No Neil Peart, no John Bonham or Bill Buford. Uh, he's more of a, what, what, what I might call a service drummer, service to the song, like Hal Blaine. Uh, that's what gets you all the gigs. <laughs> I've learned that. A willingness to do whatever the songwriter or producer wants and leave much of you and your ego at the door. Uh, not that he can't smash the skins with the best of them. All right, let's get to it. Let's meet drummer extraordinaire from the immediate family, Russ Kunkel.
3: Between the darkness on the street and the houses filling up with light. Between the stillness in my heart and the roar of the approaching night. Somebody's calling after somebody Somebody turns the corner out of sight Looking for somebody Somewhere in the night
1: Welcome to Deeper Digs, Russ Kunkel. How are you
3: doing today? Thank you, Christian. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Oh, we are so excited to be talking to you. Um, I I mean, I was going through a lot of uh, your uh, CV uh, over the last uh, two days, and there's just no way we're going to get to all of it. It's just, I'm just going to have to pick my spots. Uh, You're one of the most recorded uh, men in history, uh, I think. And... Uh, have played on some of the greatest uh, songs and albums uh, that all of us know and love, and we're excited to talk about what we can get to today. But first, we have to start um, uh, from someplace, and I I need to let the diggers know that you're not actually Russ Kunkel. Uh, You are actually the famous drummer Eric Stumpy Joe Childs. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds as if the rumors of your death were, in fact, greatly exaggerated. Would you like to comment on that?
3: Well, um, yeah, A Stubby Joe Childs um, expired choking on someone else's vomit.
1: Yes, someone else's vomit. That's that's very strange. And that
3: that is an absolutely perfect example of the incredible humor of Chris Guest. <laughs>
1: Oh my God! Yes, uh, uh, obviously we are talking about Spinal Tap. For those of you who haven't quite picked up on it yet, but uh, yeah, you uh, you get the uh, uh, I guess it's a cameo when you get right down to it of uh, being in the film uh, for a moment, uh, as I believe it's the second drummer uh, to the Spinal Correct. Tap uh, legend, right? right? <clears throat> yeah, Joe be being the first. that's right that's right that's right and i can't remember how he died uh oh it was a gardening accident right 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 and well so uh and then the last drummer spontaneously combusts so given those three that is choking on your own vomit uh probably the best way to go i think that
3: oh no i'm sorry somebody else's i think (laughs) i think that that i think that wins the cameo i think uh, (laughs) that is by far the you know um,
1: anyway. I think. Well, I I know for a fact that is one of the most quoted jokes from the film. Uh, you know, when you get around a bunch of uh, guys and have a couple of beers, uh, and you start talking Spinal Tap, that's that's one of the ones that comes out pretty quickly.
3: That's right.
1: Now that must have been fun. How did how did you get involved? Seriously, how did you get involved in uh, in the making of? Uh, know that uh, truly tremendous rock documentary
3: well pretty simple i already mentioned his name it's because of chris guest yeah um Um. chris came not to california um he was uh he was already friends of my my wife at the time leah and um and he we spent time coming over to our house and you know we recorded some things we actually played softball together on weekends and so we, be, we became good friends and then you know of course you know, the rest is really history. He's gone on to have such an incredible, uh, uh, you know, productive career as a, as, a, as a filmmaker.
1: Oh, my God. But yeah, at that, yeah uh, Best uh, in Show and uh, uh, Mighty Wind. And yeah, we could go. But, at, but, but at, this is your interview. But, <laughs> at, but, at that
3: time, uh, but at that time, he and Michael McKean and Harry Shear um, were um, working on various different things together. I think that they, I think that they might have all worked in, at Second City together. I'm not sure, but um, like a lot of people at that time, they were also musicians, kind of closet musicians, right? And so they would get together on, you know, during the week on a Tuesday at some place or some rehearsal place, and they would play music. And one thing led to another, and and I think it might have been Chris that started it, but they started developing these characters in their rehearsals, and. Rob Reiner came by one of their rehearsals one day and Rob hadn't made a film yet. And he was, you know, in their, in their, in their pod, in their group. And mm-hmm. I think the discussion went around, well, we should, we should make a movie about this. This is, this might have some legs. And I, I, I don't think that they really knew what they had until it came out. I mean, there was just, you know, they were, they were cutting their teeth and little did they know that they made one of the most iconic films ever to be made.
1: Oh my god. Um yeah that that film looms large over rock and roll in both good and bad
3: ways. Um so uh so I was uh, you I was just lucky to to have been asked to to Yeah, to come in. And yeah. Was, yeah. You know, and it's it was just nothing but fun and I'm very proud of it.
1: Yeah, and I think you've uh, you've actually toured uh, with them in the various incarnations and returns and what happened. I you, did. Right? I never
3: toured with them. I played one gig at a NAM show. With oh. Them. oh you I did. Them. Okay. They performed at NAM and uh, I played with them and it was incredibly fun.
1: Oh man, that must have been great. Uh to to just always always have that little piece uh there. So I, I I before we move on one last question uh, about the movie um because you you've been both a studio and touring musician you know how true I mean we I think we all know that a lot of this you can kind of find the original event and go back and say wow this really happened to this band and that really happened to this band and things like that right It was
3: absolutely accurate. It, it was <laughs> and and more than that um all touring bands from the, you know, up until now will, will, can all tell you about moments when they're leaving a dressing room and walking onto the stage and they're going down a long corridor with ducting and, and all kinds of stuff. And they have to bend down They'll They'll all, somebody will inevitably say, you know, hello. Let's you. not but, get lost to the stage. <laughs> but, you know, that, that whole scene, you know, so. so
1: oh my god, Very,
3: very true to form all right well let's get let's get
1: a little serious here um uh, we gotta discuss the big elephant in the room uh and uh you know that is our pandemic that we are
3: experiencing the
1: uh covid nineteen How are you
3: doing'm uh, so, I had an antibody test because uh, 'cause I just had a physical a week ago and it came back negative, so you know I haven't had that. so that's you that, haven't had, that's had that's a good mm-hmm. answer
1: so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah um. You know it's obviously affecting the music business tremendously, uh, <clears throat> maybe more so than just about any uh, industry out there. Um, uh, I uh, am having a hard time, and i I play in a a classic rock uh, cover band uh, in northern california, and um I have a hard time trying to figure out when we're actually going to be allowed to 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 do this. Uh, um, you know, we're holding out hope. Um, but each month, uh, comes with more cancellations and I would assume you guys are seeing the same thing.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, to, to give you the grim, the grim opinion, it's going to be a really long time. Uh, and for, for many, many reasons. Um, uh, it's not going to be safe to have, uh, groups of people like we've seen in Coliseums or even in theaters for a while. You know, I, I think I think even uh, the advent of a of a vaccine is going to make uh, is going to put people's mind at ease a little bit, but I think it's going to be a long time before we. It's going to be a new normal. I don't think we're ever going to get back to where we were. The difference between um, um, musical venues and musicians' well being and and lifestyle and earning capacity is very different than that of sports figures, right? Now, they have one thing in common: there's crowds they depend on crowds of people coming, paying money and buying tickets and, and witnessing the events. You know, um, most musicians are, are just employees. you know we're, we're, more, yeah. we're more like the people that make the hot dogs at the stadium. You know, yeah. and, of, and of course, there are musicians that are incredibly wealthy and, and, and will do fine through this. But I think it's going to be a long-winded answer. That's going to be quite a while. Wow if at all, that we ever get back to what it used to be. It's going to be a new normal. It's going to be different. And I think, I think what's going to become more prominent is what we're doing right now. As I think that, um, people are going to communicate about music and share music way more on these kinds of platforms. than we're going to be able to do them live.
1: That is, um, it is a sad, but true answer. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Somebody sent me a uh, a post yesterday of, uh, you know, this uh, suit that somebody might wear to go to a concert. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's like a suit that you're going to go into outer space in, and that's just ridiculous. Nobody is going to wear something like that to go to a concert. I mean, you know, there are these novelty things, um, but, uh, you know, I don't know um i've always felt that rock and roll does not translate very well to the screen it it is just not the same as being in that room as it's actually happening no, it's, uh, even if you're watching it on simulcast or what no happens. it's
3: not it's not the same as is being in the room and feeling that everyone's vibe, you're hearing the same thing
1: yeah the energy the you know the the the, the just the the social uh, nature of it, uh, the uh, the mass engagement that everybody is focused on. You just, you can't capture that on a screen. No, um, and uh, without a uh, concert, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's been three months for me uh, since the last show I went to. And um, that's probably the longest it's been since I was, what, 16, 17 years old, and that's crazy. I can't imagine not having these in my life. And then
3: there's there's the economics of it, which, uh, and the, you know the, the hard truth about that is, uh, I'll give you an example. Take a venue like the Greek Theater, okay? Um, I think it's right around 5,000 capacity. Um, mm-hmm. What they're talking about now is um, they'll open a place like the Greek Theater to a third of its capacity, okay? That because the spacing in the seats has to be far apart in front, behind, mm-hmm. and beside. So already you're already you're already only making a third of the amount of money that you would normally make on ticket sales, and and unfortunately the promoters will pass will pass that ding onto the artist. So the artist yeah. guarantees if you're if you're if your artist guarantee was hundred thousand dollars a show, well now you're going to probably be offered 30 dollars. And and, and it, it become touring entities as we know it, as you know, you have to have, you have to have tractor trailers, you have to have a crew, you have to have buses, all, every one of those companies, the bus companies, the the touring coach companies, the, the trucking companies, they're, they're all, they're all sent home. They're all, all of yeah. those guys are out of work right now. You know, all the roadies, yeah. all the crews, no one's got any work to do. And, and, and a, um, a touring entity is not going to be able to afford that at the prices they're going to be offered. So
1: No, I also think that you're, you're going to lose a lot of these guys to, you know, other work. They're just going to have to go and get somewhere else, and <laughs> which means that you will lose this professionalization that, you know, it's been a well-oiled machine
3: for decades now. What might happen, and it's, it's hard to tell because you're kind of looking into the future and guessing, is that that there might be a resurgence of smaller venues. In other words, the the beautiful theaters all over the country that, you know, that lots of shows get made in would do better because their capacity is smaller. So they would, in other words, if they only could have 200 people in there, they might be able to have a hundred, you know what I mean? So, so, and, and they might, there might be a resurgence of, of people accepting less money playing smaller venues, but but concentrating on giving giving the people that come to the show a really good show
1: yeah uh, but uh you know my first thought on that is that with the you know a, a a less packed venue you have less energy. You have, you know, you know what it's like to play in front of a giant stadium packed to the gills versus, you know, uh, the country fair where the couple of people are, you know, out there watching. Yeah. There's no, there's no
3: question about that. And that that's talking about what, you know, what it looks like from the other side. How, how would you like standing on stage and looking at like 150 people in masks? You would be able to see the expression on their face.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Are you are you getting through? Are you are you are you making that communication? That is your job to do uh, out there. It's 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 got to be incredibly difficult and frustrating, especially for some. And then there's a, so.
3: there's another school of thought, which, you know, it's hard for me to wrap my head around. is that like, if we just open up the country and everybody just pretends it goes back to normal, more people get sick and more people die. But eventually we'll have herd immunity. After maybe 400,000 people die, um
1: I wouldn't want to make that decision no, I.
3: Um, but you know, but there's a lot of people that feel that that's that's how it's got to go
1: um yeah that's that's a difficult political question uh um, um, you know uh, you know the last time we went through something like this was a hundred years ago uh, nineteen eighteen Spanish flu. Um, where you know medical science was not what we have today uh, i think that's a big reason why the uh worldwide number of deaths are um you know not in the fifty to a hundred million uh that we experienced at that pandemic uh, uh, in nineteen eighteen nineteen nineteen um but uh um <clears throat> you know um there's so much to this disease that we don't know. Uh, I think uh, you know we're just finding out that, yeah, um, it's up to thirty plus percent are asymptomatic. Uh, uh, maybe up to eighty percent have uh, minor uh, symptoms. Um, but we don't know what the long-term causes uh, or effects uh, will be. Um, and yeah, there's a 20% where uh, it gets really bad. And uh, I think um, looking today, it's about a, a 6% global uh, mortality rate. Um, so that's a, that's a very tough situation for anybody to, to make. Uh, to decide that, um, you know, this group of people are just going to have to um, sacrifice themselves.
3: You know, for a long period of time, this this planet and its inhabitants, we have been going at such warp speed to where I don't know. Um, You know, we are all we all live inside our own bubbles. And we, we keep repeating everything day after day. We do the same things. We, we, we go shop, we go buy, I want a new car, I want to do this. I want to go on a vacation. I got to earn more money. We, we, it's like a hamster. We're on, we're on them all. It's a, they're individual, but we're on them. And we've all been on them for years
0: mm-hmm. and the
3: population kept getting bigger. Everything kept getting faster with the internet information travels quicker. The planes fly farther. Some there had something had to bust, something Mm, had to break. As soon as there is any kind of cataclysmic event, every every time I I live in San Clemente, California. Now I I lived in L.A. almost my whole life, but every time I drive up there now, I go, man, you know, if there's an event, it's not going to be pretty not there, There's too many people. And I don't want to be here when when some event happens. Now it could be a, it could be an earthquake, it could be a tornado, it could be something that people don't expect something that upends mm-hmm. the norm. And, and now now we're right in the middle of multiple ones, right? right? This pandemic has upended the norm. And everything, mm-hmm. everything stopped. It hit, it hit everybody, every corporation, every family, every nation. It, it just it unilaterally just took a swipe at everybody, and 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 quite honestly, you know, I think everyone is dumbfounded at at, at how to how to come out of it. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, as as I said, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, a new world was being birthed, uh, and it really wasn't until uh, what we lost. Uh, I think uh, uh, two million in World War One. We lost, uh, um, you know. 400 million i think in world war ii uh, my numbers may be off there um and uh that's what it took to invent the world that you and i grew up in and uh, to your point um something was gonna give uh i think we can start with the the focus of uh climate change and uh while uh i uh, for many years have said climate change is a symptom <laughs> The real problem is overpopulation uh all the other issues uh, fall w- with that and and that either we needed to do something about it uh, 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 through uh, uh, science and uh, and purpose, or mother nature was going to do something about it and I'm afraid that mother nature is uh, Swiping back now, uh, you know we've seen these. You know, I've lived through horrible fires uh, in California, as I'm sure you have, uh, over the last several years. Um, very different than what I remember uh, growing up in Southern California, where you know every year we would have those uh, Santa Ana winds that would drive wildfires, but nothing like what I've seen over the last. No, decade. not at all. Uh, you know uh, the other issues uh, that all fall in uh, in place, and I think the unless we I, I think your larger point is unless we as a species learn to get together and figure this out as a whole, um, this is just going to continue to get worse. Exactly.
3: Exactly. Yeah. It's, and, yeah. And then, and then you get into a very, uh, a very spiritual conversation about, about everyone, you know, coming to a point which this could lead into, uh, you know, your, the conversation about the the general feeling that was present in the sixties, you know, until, until everyone on the planet realizes that we're all connected, you know, and we all have mothers and fathers and uncles and aunts and cousins. And, and, you know, uh, we all put our pants on the same way until we realize that we really are brothers and sisters until that, until that epiphany happens at once to everyone, we're going to be stuck in this quagmire that we're in right now and that kind of a feeling was present in the 60s when that music was being made
1: that is true. how about that first segue there's a great segue so let's let's talk about the upcoming rock documentary on your super group the immediate family so how, how did that come about
3: well let me think about that for a second i think it came about with um danny Korchmar and um and our our uh, publicist lisa roy having a conversation with denny
1: ah and- yeah denny denny tedesco mm-hmm. who directed the wrecking crew okay. uh famous documentary about about the previous group of uh of gentlemen and women uh carol Kaye sure. notably uh as um, uh, the, uh, the 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 folks who were just like on a million uh, hits out there in the sixties, uh, a little bit in the seventies, but then it seems like you guys kind of take over, uh, take over
3: the uh, studios in the seventies. Well, it was, yeah, it was an amazing time. And yes, and, and, and one of the differences I think between the wrecking crew, uh, and, and kind of what we were, um, asked to do is, you know, the wrecking crew played for a lot of groups, who had um that would tour with different musicians but they would record with the wrecking crew and I, those decisions i think were probably made uh, by record labels and by producers um mm-hmm. and, uh, pr- and probably you know participants in the band but it was it was the norm then you know if nancy mm-hmm. sinatra didn't have a band but she would record her album with the wrecking crew and then they would put together a band of musicians they would hire to go on the road yeah, and, and, and yeah. so we, you know, we actually got to play with artists like James Taylor and Carole King, and then we would tour with. Them. That was the yeah. that was the difference for us, and and that came to be. I think I would have to give credit to Peter Asher for that. For at that time, yeah. Peter was producing the James Taylor records, of course, the Linda Ronson. Records. Linda, yeah. And what he wanted is he wanted the way that the records sounded to be the way that they sounded live. He wanted it to be the same musicians touring that recorded the records, and so fortunately,
1: seems pretty logical to me.
3: Fortunately for us, we we had like lots of work. You know, I remember going from a James Taylor tour right to a Jackson Brown tour right to a Linda Ronstadt tour, and it would take the whole spring and summer into the into the winter. That sounds like good times. It it definitely was, and we were all very fortunate that yeah. won't
0: happen yeah. here's a quick word from our sponsors we'll be back in a bit and now back to the program
3: yeah um
1: i don't know you know it's funny i mean i i still pay attention to new music and one of the biggest differences i see is just you know the the liner notes uh you know where you know This big uh, on an album in the 70s, you know, the liner notes are, you know, pages long. uh, Nowadays, there's there's just, you know, uh, know, 20 producers, 16 writers. (laughs) It's kind of hard to keep track. So, yeah, you can't have all those people going on the road. That doesn't make any sense. And besides that, music probably doesn't even need that many people going on
3: the road either. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's, let's get back to the beginning. Um, uh, you were born in, in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, I just, a a family thing. Uh, uh, what part of Pittsburgh?
3: Well, I was born right in Pittsburgh and you are in Pittsburgh. general hospital. And, uh, and we lived mm-hmm. in, uh, my family lived in various different places. We lived in a little town called Clinton, we lived mm-hmm. in a little town called Imperial and then, um, uh, the last town I lived in, there was a little town called South Heights, right on the uh, Ohio River.
1: Oh, all right, but you only lived there till I think you were about nine, That's and
3: right. then the family
1: moved out to uh, to Southern California. What what made the move? Well, my father passed away,
0: and
3: uh-huh. uh, my brothers and a lot of my brothers and sisters, My one brother was in the Navy, and um, two of my sisters and uh, another brother were already out in California. And when my father passed away, my mom and I decided that uh, we would just go out there to be with the rest of the family. I see.
1: I see. So uh, it uh, sounds like you're the baby. I am a, the caboose. The caboose, the caboose. So you uh, end up in Long Beach and probably Long Beach because your your brother was stationed near
3: there. I, I no, my 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 sister Charlene lived there and uh, she had just gotten married. We were, one of the reasons we, we were out there for her wedding when my father passed away and Mm -hmm. then uh and so we decided to go back out there my mom got a job managing apartments in north long beach and so that's when i went to junior high school and high school in long beach and so that's the beginning of my southern california exposure
1: yeah yeah now uh was music a big part of uh, family life or did you have to go out and seek it outside? my brother
3: my older brother gilbert uh is a drummer and had a, he's, I, I give him full responsibility for getting me into playing the drums. Uh, and he had a band that rehearsed in our house back in, in Pennsylvania. And so I kind of grew up with hearing music. And, you know, he sat me down on his knee and put sticks in my hand. And I kind of never looked back after that. So, what was um, what was the
1: first uh, music you might call your own that, that you know that you you know may, maybe the first record you
3: went out and bought with your own money? First record I went and bought with my own money. Hmm. Probably. Uh, wow. Probably Fresh Cream.
1: Fresh Cream. The first Cream record. Oh the first cream record. Oh Ginger Baker. Okay. All oh, right. No, money,
3: did, I listened to a lot of music before that, but yeah, I, I remember I remember coveting that,
1: But to make that decision to say, "Hmm, I want this one over that yeah, one." Yeah. But then it,
3: when, once you start then it's an avalanche of spending on <laughs> <records, laughs> yes, Which yes. I still do today. I love playing vinyl.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh it, so you still have a nice vinyl setup uh uh, so, you know, that, that, that begs a question, um, we've been working with uh, with Neil Young's uh, group on um, high-definition audio. We're, we're the first podcast to present a podcast in high-definition. Um, uh, do you believe, uh, like Neil does, that digital uh,
3: audio is uh, poorer quality than vinyl, than analog? Pretty much. Yeah, I do. I mean, I love I I just love the feeling of listening to, uh, you know, analog. I love analog recordings. You know, I love recording analog when possible. It's a little cumbersome now, but you know, it's, it's, I I like the way, I just like the way that it sounds. And I love listening to vinyl records. It's just a whole, I don't know whether it's a placebo effect of picking up the album, being able to hold it and look at it. And you feel so good before you even put the needle down that you're already going to like
1: it. it you mean it has a smell, you know? It does.
3: It definitely does. My my equipment's in storage right now because we just moved to a new house, but, but um, I do, and you can buy great vinyl now. Um, It's all, you know, if you want to if you want to throw some money down a hole so line up vinyl. <laughs> yeah and, and real quick uh,
1: back to your brother i believe uh he still plays in a band up here in the bay area he did
3: he's passed away now his band played at a lot of church functions and a lot of different mm-hmm. things up in san jose california
1: well I, our band is out of san jose i wonder if i ever ran into him what was the name of his last band do you remember i don't him?
3: remember I don't remember what it was. I don't know if it had a name or they were just playing for the church. Ah, okay. They were just playing for the church. All right,
1: all right. Uh, and I understand that uh, you were pretty enamored with the song Wipeout. Well, everyone
3: was, if you grew up in Long Beach. I mean, you know, I I was writing in the hotbed of surf music.
1: Yeah, 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 that Beach Boys, Jan and Dean. Um, um, uh, uh, oh, oh gosh, I can't remember the guitar player. Big Dale. Uh, so- Dickdale and all of that. So, uh, and I think, uh, you are a surfer. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh, so moving to San Clemente was a smart move. Well, you
3: know, I've surfed, I've surfed down here my whole life, I would have to drive from LA. T- trestles, right? Well, trestles, lower trestles. I surf at San Onofre yeah. now, but, but,
1: San but, okay.
3: um, but we would drive, I would, you know, we would ditch high school. I went to Long Beach Poly and we would drive to Huntington Beach and surf in the morning. And, mm-hmm. and then if if the surf was really good, we wouldn't go back to school. But usually, we would go back to school and try to make first period. Yeah, yeah. but I but I've surfed up and down this whole part of Orange County my whole life.
1: Wow, a, a musician who's also a surfer—that's that's a rare thing because uh, you know, remember, most of music is done at night, and most surfing is done early in the it's morning. It's not as
3: rare as you think. You know? <laughs> now another very um, great friend of mine, great drummer, Tristan Bowden, is a, is a mm-hmm. very good surfer as well, and not to mention Jack Johnson.
1: Yeah, of course, Jack Eddie Vedder. Yeah, there, well, we could, yes, there are plenty uh, musicians that uh, have taken up the, uh, the, the board. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. gone out.
3: What's that? Gwyneth Paltrow.
1: Gwyn- oh, well, she's not a musician, but I'll take it. I'll she take got- it. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that that you you treat uh your your surfing and, and how you play uh as kind of in the same sort of spiritual manner.
3: I guess it works out that way. Yeah, I, I've never consciously thought about that, but I I I I can see how there could be a, a relationship between the two. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um so uh I think you were in six different bands in high school, all at the same time?
3: Not all at the same time. Um, I don't know if there were six. There was the Barron's, there was the Burnham Woods, there was the, the Things to Come, and I think that was the, that, the Things to Come is the band that I came to Hollywood with.
1: Yeah, that you played at the uh, whiskey, Uh, and um, uh, I think uh, you also. And uh, because you know, whenever I hear this name, uh, I usually have to ask. I discovered that early in your career, you became friends with Jimi Hendrix. Was that through Things to Come and playing the whiskey? That
3: that's 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 not true at all. And I don't. If you got that from Wikipedia, you know, Wikipedia, anybody can write anything about anybody in Wikipedia. Yeah. So so it's like somebody. And I think that might have come from some sort of Japanese translation about some interview that I did somewhere. And I think where where it got misconstrued is that my band, Things to Come, played at the Whiskey and Gogo for 19 weeks in a row, right after the Motown era at the Whiskey and Gogo ended. And it started up again with. The-
1: oh, the dinner club when it was a supper club. Right. Sort of and then,
3: thing. And then it, it went through these different eras. And then. Mm-hmm. our manager at the time got us the gig being the house opening act for, you know, uh, started with Gene Clark, then the birds without Gene Clark, um, the electric flag, uh, the Hollies cream, Jimi Hendrix experience, you know, the Chicago transit authority, the Illinois speed press, you know, we, we, we opened for all of them.
1: Yeah. Whoever came into town. Yeah,
3: And so I think somewhere in, in the fact that, you know, opening up when you know and jimmy hendrix being mentioned somehow they misconstrued that as me being his friend no but i yeah. i met jimmy once at Cass elliott's house but i but i was i never played with him live or, or never okay. hung with him other than maybe sharing a joint
1: <laughs> hey that's good enough that's but that's better than than most of us so, uh, okay, at least you got to do that. Um, uh, but you also did play was, was your first professional gig with the Kin- Kingston trio? Is that, is that, it was about, actually right? with
3: a pro- professional. I mean, if you consider things to come professional, I thought it was, professional.
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. 19 weeks at the whiskey. Oh, definitely, but I,
3: they, after that, the band broke up and I got married and, um, and I went to work for John Stewart who replaced Dave guard in the Kingston trio. And I have to take a minute to to point something out that occurred to me a little while ago that I that I've never mentioned before. And I really want to mention it now. You know, to me, John Stewart may have been the very first Americana artist.
1: Oh, but before the band, a lot of people point to the band as, uh, you know, the godfather. If
3: you listen to his body of work, he was really he was really like the grandfather of that in many, many ways. And uh, and I have to give him credit. Working with him and and playing live with him and recording with him gave me the tools that I later used. I, I learned how to play for singer songwriters by playing with John Stewart. How so? Because he was a singer songwriter, and, and yeah, and just just the uh, just paying attention to the lyrics and uh, and being having simpatico with with what he was trying to. Uh, you know, portray and relay in the song. By mm-hmm. listening a lot. And I used the same things that I learned playing with John when I when I got to play with James Taylor and when I got to play with Carole King. So I was I was already prepared for doing that by working with John. And I owe him a lot and I miss him.
1: Wow. Yeah. So because, uh, you know, uh, that period that you're you're talking about with uh, with John Stewart is like late 60s, uh, I, mid to late 60s,
3: late 68, 69, early 70s. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, uh, and of course, the singer songwriter becomes prominent in the early 70s. So you're primed and ready for this uh, genre that is going to become a big thing. Yeah um so so that's where where you kind of learn to listen to that more subdued type of music as opposed to what was going on around you at the time the psychedelic uh harder rock i mean you, you mentioned cream and things like that uh so uh, uh
3: this allowed
1: you to uh think differently than 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 most drummers at that time is what you're saying
3: yeah it definitely prepared me for it for sure
1: yeah now i i think 1970s like where you really Get noticed in the studio, uh. You know, you're you're playing with like Odetta and BB King. Uh, I mean, just in 1970 alone, Bob Dylan. There's just how how did that all just happen all of a sudden? It was a good year, Christian. It, it was a good year. Yes, a a mighty good year. Great vintage. Yes, <laughs> I can imagine. And and so at the end of it, did you say? Wow, I, I think I'm a professional studio musician now.
3: You know, things were moving so fast during that period of time, and uh, I mean, I was like 21, 22 years old. You know, I, I and and uh, and I was a father, and <laughs> so I uh, I was just putting one foot in front of the other. You know, it wasn't. It's it's not until you get years further down the road, and in hindsight, you look back, and people always ask me. Did you know when you were recording Sweet Baby James that that was going to be the iconic record that it is? And the answer is no. I was just happy to be employed. You know, right, was, right. You were, it was just another gig. It was just that I knew it was important. Yeah, I, of I, I knew that. I knew that, I, I and I also knew how fortunate I was to be good friends with Peter Asher and, and to be involved in his circle and, and the body of work that he's done in his career as a producer. I, and, uh, you know, I counted kind of my blessings every day. But, um, you know, i never i never stopped and patted myself on the back and went hey buddy you made it you know i right. if i had any feeling at all as i felt like ooh, i was good enough to not get fired
1: <laughs> yeah because the phone kept ringing right
3: yeah the phone did keep ringing and you know i you know it was just it was it was an amazing time i was very very fortunate to have, have had it uh
1: well yes um you uh we certainly there's a, a right place at right time, but there's also talent uh, that, you know, must be uh, a big factor uh, as well. Uh, and, and so I might ask you know how you know how do you approach uh, a, a gig uh, you know uh, as a drummer um, do you you know come in with uh, uh, certain expectations or are you just you listen to uh, what's going on and then you know um, uh, you, you know you, you you then are on the spot you you literally have to create something right then and there
3: uh, for the most part if it- if, if I haven't been sent material ahead of time and charts of, of, of particular things that people want, if I'm just going into a studio and listening to songs kind of like they're being played down once or twice and then we're going to record it, I I try to do something that I've never done before. In other words, I, I try not to rely on, on you know, old standards. You know, if I,
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, and um, a perfect example of that is the way that I play with, law well, love it, you know. Um, I'll give you a, a short story. Yeah, which you you've done
1: a lot of work with. Lyle. A lot of
3: work. I've worked with La longer than I've worked with anyone, and um, mm-hmm. I, I love him to bits. And uh, he's been incredibly loyal to me, and I would do anything for the man. Mm-hmm. Um, we were we were cutting a song. I think it was on Joshua Judges Ruth, and I don't remember the song, but I was just kind of playing. We were running it down. I was kind of playing a standard, you know, like a standard kind of country beat, you know, and. And he said, he stopped and he said, what's that thing that you're playing that's going tick, 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 tick? And I, I said, the hi-hat? He said, yeah, yeah, don't play that. And I went, okay. So I knew I had to play that same kind of groove, but so instead of playing the hi-hat like this, I alternated it. You know, I played half as many beats and go noted yeah. it and played the backbeat on the snare drum. And he went, oh, that's much better. And what I realized is he was, his the way his his Fingerpicks play. He wears fingerpicks on his fingers, uh-huh. but, and it's very percussive and it's very uh, syncopated, right?
1: Uh so it's interfering. With it, and
3: there's a lot of subdivision in there, and because none of it is, is locked to the grid, he was hearing hmm. the flams, and so I just took and changed my part. So I and with, with and with Lyle, I always try to come up with, and with anybody that I'm, you know, playing a new piece of material with, I try to I try to come up with something that I personally have never played before and invent something new that fits, that fits for the song, you know, but I just try, I I listen, I listen a lot at first and try to let the muse direct me Mm -hmm. into a direction.
1: Yeah. So it's, 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 you know, and I I think this is such a common answer when, when I talk to folks like yourself, you know, especially with, you know, long credits in the, in the studio. And that is, it's all about the service of the song. Totally. You know, it's, just, just that's, you know, it, you, you are not supposed to be there to be flashy unless the song says be flashy. That's correct. You know? And and most of the time that's not the case, you know. Uh, most of the time, especially in in pop songs, you know, the the, the drums are are almost like children. They're they're meant to be uh, seen and not heard, <laughs> in a weird sort of way, um, which is not necessarily the case with uh, the 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 uh, the band that kind of is created out of some of this early work, and that's the section uh, with yourself, uh, Lee Scalar and uh, Danny Korchmar uh, as uh, as an actual group, right? And, and
3: also a great keyboard player, Craig Durgey.
1: Yeah, Craig, Craig Durge excuse me. And uh, uh, And you guys do three albums of not singer-songwriter easy listening, but jazz fusion instrumental uh type of things which allows you to kind of stretch out wouldn't you say
3: completely you know i think we all gravitated towards that the way um a, t- a teenager would gravitate towards looking at a new fast car that they want to ride you know it was it was a it was a way for us to um well we learned a lot playing together i we learned a lot about you know playing our chops got really good playing together and playing that kind of music. And, uh, and it was a really good learning period for us um, as, as musicians together. But, um, and, and fusion music was new, and we, we got thrown onto a tour with the Mahavishnu Orchestra. We,
1: yeah, I was gonna say John McLaughlin, you right, right. They couldn't have
3: sent us to a better you know uh, university. <laughs> school, right, right, finishing school. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would, the only thing that would have been equal would have been going on this tour with Weather Report. But Right. but um, but it was a wonderful period of time and it's. Uh, and it was really I listen to those things now and I go, oh, my God, how did I do that? You know, but um, it was fun. It was really, really fun. And it was a it was a, a, an experiment that had a, um, a shelf life. And mm-hmm. we did it until we didn't want to do it anymore. You know, and. and uh, it was-
1: yeah, I think you did three albums uh, between 72 and 77. And I
3: think yeah. I think our, all of our musical tastes kind of went in different directions. You yeah. know, um, I know for sure, Danny got deep into doing incredible production work with lots of great artists and Leland and I, mm-hmm. Leland and I just started going on the road with everybody, so.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and still to this day, uh, well, until just recently, that is, uh, you guys were working nonstop. It's true. Yeah, especially you and and Leland, just everywhere. Uh, you know, you, you know, you you don't quite have the the look of uh, of, uh, of 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 uh, the 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 obvious look of of Leland uh, with the big beard or or Waddy uh, with the, the 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 kinky hair and the and the granny glasses. You know, so you know, uh, you, uh, you 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 kind of uh, you get to play in the background a little bit more. Huh? I love
3: being in the background, and I save so much <laughs> money on hair products.
1: Yeah, I know. I know exactly what you mean, my friend. <laughs> um, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, jazz and, and doing this jazz fusion thing uh, with the section. And so that that brings me to somebody I really want to bring up that who I love to death that you got to work with. And, and it's going to lead me to a, a further question. And that's working with Joni Mitchell on both Blue and uh, For the Roses. Right. That must have been just I, I just think that she's. I think she's underrated, to put it that way.
3: Uh, you know, that uh, working with Jones right up there on, on my list of, uh, of, of, of much appreciation, um, you know, in my career uh, and to be part of those records.
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned a uh, singer songwriter uh, servicing the song and you're just like almost barely audible in, you know, the famous song, California.
3: It's true, and I'm actually playing drums on that. Yeah.
1: So was it was it just mixed way back, or were with, you like just with brushes? I was or? playing with
3: brushes, but I was playing lightly, and it it was absolutely perfect. You know. Oh. So if you you know, I recently got to do something that was really really special. Brandy Carlisle called me and asked me to be part of her band to perform Blue in its entirety at the Walt Disney Music Hall. We did it. Uh, we did it in I think November last year and uh and joan was in the audience and so was sir elton john and we did the whole album front to back and uh it was absolutely extraordinary and um i don't know if you're how familiar you are with brandy but oh did, uh, the joke i think is, is one on of the greatest songs years. of the last 10 years she is an extraordinary talent but mm-hmm. an extraordinary human being and i love her to bits and I was so honored that she asked me to be a part of it because I, I played on the original record. And so, um, uh, there again, it, I had, I had to do, I had to, ch- I had to come up with some things to play that would, that would fit the songs and the arrangements because we also, we had a percussionist you know, in the mm-hmm. and the band and a lot of those songs on blue, I played percussion, so I had to develop uh, drum parts. That that serviced the song and, and yep. the in perform, Brandy's performance because uh, she stayed absolutely true to Joni's arrangements and to her vocal she learned it note for note. Oh my god! And so and you know it wasn't recorded, it wasn't televised. It was just if you were there, you got to see it, and if you weren't, you're not going to. I think she I think she's going to do it again in New York City and maybe Chicago, but I think she's going to use her own band. So um,
1: to the jazz point uh i read is this true because i've heard this quote before and i think it's attributed to you that you're the one that told her uh she really needs to go out and find some real jazz players for her next
3: album yeah it was it was in the studio i'm probably on for the roses before the roses came after blue right yes yeah and i you know the section was going full bore then i mean during that period of time i believe and and so i I could just tell, you know, Joni is a very rhythmic player. I mean, Mm. she's she I'm I'm sure she could play drums if she wanted to. I'm sure she sat down at a kunga, She would be able to, you know, play very well. But um, I remember telling her, I said, you know, you might try playing with some jazz musicians. And the next thing she next thing, you know, she was out playing with the L.A. Express. Yeah, yeah. And that was so she
1: listened to what you said.
3: (laughs) Yeah, and I I think she does give me credit for that. but it was, it, was a, it was a natural thing. It was very obvious that that, yeah. that would be a natural progression for her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, thank you very and, much because then, allowed, we got a great, court and spark and all kinds of great stuff came and and comes then, out of and that. And yeah. I
3: got to hear it because in 1974, I was, I was uh, asked to play on the Crosby Stills National Young Tour, the stadium mm-hmm. Tour, and Joan and the LA Express were on the bill on every date. So I got to watch her do that with them. And the great John Guerin, who I missed terribly, yeah. You know, and Tom Scott and yeah. um Max Bennett, who's not here anymore. It's a terrific yeah. band. Yeah, yeah.
1: So y- you just mentioned you were on the 74 CSNY tour, uh which has a whole shitloads of stories <laughs> with that. Um none of which where about. not oh oh you're all it's all under NDA. <laughs> where where I, I understand uh the the cocaine was uh like uh brought in by truckloads uh, and that uh, notes had to be I, slipped under doors because nobody was talking to it I or. thought that
3: was Stevia. Stevia.
1: Oh, Stevia. <laughs> you just put it in your coffee. I wasn't snorting it. <laughs> yeah, that must have been just a wild tour. It was
3: incredible. It really was incredible. I mean, I loved every yes. minute of it. You know, i i had a I had a pretty serious uh, job at that point in in being in that band. I, it was, you know, Joe Lala and I and Tim Drummond. You know, had to kind of hold it down. You know, <laughs> uh, keep those guys in line. Well, I mean, you know, first of all, if you look at pictures of the stage setup, I mean. I don't even know if they were, if there were monitors, I don't even know if they could ever hear them. We the, the, the guitars were so loud. I mean, the,
1: the. well So, so Neil and, and, and Steven are like trying to battle each other oh, with the volume. Well,
3: always. I mean, so as, okay, these, this is a vocal band, right? Like, <laughs> it's supposed <don't>, to be. <laughs> remember yeah. sweet Judy blue eyes, you know, come on, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, so it's, they t- trying to perform those intricate vocals when you can't hear yourself and there were no in-ear monitors then no nope. it was it was difficult.
1: we got the wedges and but, maybe but, some I, side I enjoyed
3: it i loved playing with. i mean I, I i was in that band because of steven i was in steven's band right before then i, I was in steven stills band right after manassas broke up
1: Oh, I was, and that's
3: how I got to be asked to play in the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young tour. But I had never worked with Neil before then. I, 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 I've known David for years, and working with David and Graham, I I worked with him, David and Graham, a lot after that. But it's the first time I really got to play live with Neil, and I loved it every night. He is, he is, he's as serious as a heart attack. Really, really. I mean, when you come, when it comes, if you're going to be on stage with Neil Young, you better bring it. You better bring. He, the he's huh? gonna bring. He he he's gonna bring everything he's got. He, he yes. doesn't leave anything in the tank. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I love I loved playing live with him. It was one of the most enjoyable experiences of my life.
1: I I can imagine I can imagine. So just switch gears just a little bit cuz you know you you we 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 mentioned this a, a couple of times and you know the music business has changed so much uh since you kind of got into it in the late 60s and very early 70s. Um you know you you know the, the 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 70s are really where uh rock and roll um you know becomes big business. Uh in the 80s you know with the advent of the CD uh it just Explodes uh, into an even larger um, thing, and then the '90s things begin to shift a little bit. Uh, you have some technological changes, such as Napster coming out, which changes the how you know recorded music is digested by the consumer. And uh, I, I'm not sure if we want to get into a deep discussion on the the uh, uh, trials and tribulations of Napster and what all that means. But that was a, a giant shift. And then the last 20 years, uh, you know, has been really really a, a weird sort of period where, you know, uh, recorded music became less valuable it was almost like a shift where, you know, back in the day it was all about the, the recording. That's where the money was and the touring was more marketing. And now it seems to have shifted. Is is that a fair assessment? And, you know, what have you seen over the time? Well, no, you're
3: absolutely right. You know, um, uh, making a record now having an actual physical CD or something, it's, it's, it's more like a t-shirt. Uh, that, yeah. you would, that you would, they would sell or give away at a live concert because, um, you know, recently the only way to really make any money was being able to tour.
1: Right, right. And now you can't even do that.
3: I mean, it really it totally, it totally changed. Take an artist like James Taylor, he'll, he, he'll put out a record. It'll probably go to number one or in the top 10 in the first week it's out, but he'll make way more money on the tour that he does that summer. Than he will ever make on the record sales because i mean what what does it take to get certified platinum now five hundred thousand units used to be no maybe it's even less i mean yeah. so it's the record sales are down because of the streaming but it's starting to catch up it's all about intellectual property and now you know now musicians uh, and singers are being paid for for performance they're being paid performance royalties uh, from songs that they played on. That's all brand new. That we never got that mm-hmm. before. And that's a significant amount of money, you know, um that, that helps musicians, you know, and people like myself that, that were fortunate enough to play on lots of music. Yeah. And that, that ends up being, you know, a nice chunk of change. But 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 they're starting to they're starting to figure out how to pay on streaming a little more um fairly to the composers you know i I, mm-hmm. I feel very strongly i don't think i i don't think a, a composer's work should be given away for free i don't i don't believe a painter's work should be given away for free i don't believe a photographer's work should be given away for free i think that, i think we should be you know we should be paid for the,
1: compensated
3: for, yeah. for the for the creative work that we do for sure mhm mhm
1: mhm yeah i mean uh, you know th- th- this music is still um Incredibly valuable, which is, again, uh, you know, it's a a big mission of what we talk about is that this that's highly unusual. I mean, you know, you don't see Glenn Miller uh, and uh, that type of music still being uh, digested 50 years after its creation.
3: Well, it's true, you know, but you have but you have different things going on. There's something that's going on currently right now where um, Facebook has teamed up with the Harry Fox agency. And they put together a pool of money, $65 million. And they're asking all the independent publishers to opt into this pool and you get your portion of it based on how many, how, how much usage, the songs that are in your catalog are used. And, but what you sign off on is that you allow Facebook to use any of your, any of your material, like if you, as a Facebook user could take a Neil Young song and put it in your video. And w- and if you opted into it and you got a portion of that already paid up front, you can't sue for that. So it, right. it, would, it, would, it would allow any, any, anybody who's opted into this deal could, uh, will be compensated for, a a, a, a like a flat fee, mm-hmm. d- depending on what their usage is. Yep. And then anybody- so they,
1: they they provide the analytics and the reports, saying that uh, you know this particular song was. It's based on used- it's based
3: on the usage of, of twenty eighteen.
1: The usage of twenty. Uh, so no, whatever- they take
3: that year. They base on, based mm-hmm. it on the usage. That's that's your payout. I think they give it into you in two payments. But basically, what what they're trying to do, Facebook is trying to do a buyout.
1: Of all the music rights, of all
3: the music rights of the independent publishers, yeah. So now, now the the Universal Music and the Warner Chapel Music, they have to do separate deals with them, but and yeah. they and and they will get the majority of the money. Yeah, UMG and and, Warner's the and the Sony, software. the big so, guys. Yeah. So, but anyway, it's just like this is another example of, of you know. Mm-hmm. And if you if you if you opt out of it and you don't do it, then if they use your song, you have a right to tell them to take it down or to sue them yeah yeah
1: so yeah which is almost always a takedown notice uh these days uh it's not like Napster where they you know out there try to try to go and uh, legally uh affect uh, the 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 users out there but you know that that begs the question that um you know uh since we are in such the digital age and uh and even now with covid nineteen uh the inability to tour and what have you uh maybe um you know finding these micro uh, usages, uh, can all add up into something, you know, significant for, uh, the musicians that, uh, originally played and, and wrote those songs.
3: Yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. And like I said, I, they're starting to catch up. I, I, yeah, the money is starting to flow to the right places. Oh,
1: well, that's good. That's good. So that's good to hear. So, all right, back to, uh, your, uh, incredible, uh, CV, um, let's see sweet baby james uh i think that's the first time that you worked with uh with uh james Taylor, correct right? and and was was is that where you met leland uh who i think is also on that album
3: uh and that's the beginnings of the section is, is that does is that sound about well, it? leland didn't play on sweet baby james i don't think um, um bobby west i think played on that i am i'm not sure if leland played on or not maybe he did but um mm-hmm. but right around that time is when I met Lee for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you meet Danny around that same I'd time? I met
3: Danny on that album.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, on that yeah, on that yeah. album. So out of James Taylor basically Came comes cuz yeah, he may not uh, Lee may not have been on that particular album, but he'd been working with James prior. Well, he
3: toured on the, uh, yeah. the the tour that we did to promote the album. He he definitely he definitely did the tour. Yeah.
1: So so you that's where you guys first start. And, uh, uh, my understanding is that there was, uh, another member, uh, associated with, uh, with that, uh, uh, this girl piano player who happened to write a bunch of songs back in the day. Yeah, cocaine. Uh, And, uh, that leads to you playing on some little hunky dunk album that
3: uh, she wrote it's named after a rug.
1: That's right. a, a a rug, I believe, you put on walls. If I remember right, so yes, tapestry. Uh, I believe that is the album of the year, song of the year, record of the year, best pop vocal of the year. Uh, basically, sweeping the Grammys in
3: 1972. It's true. Yeah.
1: So, you know, uh, you you've said you know a gig is a gig, but did you guys know that this is where this was headed at that? I mean, granted, she kind of her singer songwriter. I mean, she paid her dues, Goffin and King and all of that. Uh, and, uh, you know, natural woman gone and on. Um, but, but did you guys know that when you're in there recording this, that, wow, there's some really good songs here.
3: Yeah. The songs were great. There was no question about it, but you know, you have to understand the bubble that, that we were in at that time, we were in the bubble of James Taylor's body of work at that time. Carol King's yeah. body of work, where we were working with people like Peter Asher and Lou Adler. I mean, that, at that time, that's the creme de la creme, right? Yeah. So w- yeah. when you're inside of it, you don't see it, you know, in mm-hmm. hindsight, it's easy to see, but no, I, we, uh, like I said, we we were having a ball. There's no question about it and, and really enjoying working together. I mean, the whole, the James Carroll, Danny Lee the joe mama that peter asher lou adler that whole group was was a special thing to be a part of you know really really special
1: yeah it's a it's a it's a really interesting time in music history uh you know it's uh it all comes out of that laurel canyon um enclave if you will from the the late 60s yeah. uh you know and we've already mentioned uh, csny that all comes out of the little canyon you even mentioned mama cass and, uh you know the mamas and the papas and all of that and so the next iteration you know probably you know there's doug weston's uh, troubadour there uh, down at the bottom of the canyon yeah. <laughs> everything kind of circles around that and uh uh and uh you know we get into this you know this what 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 I think is a is a, 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 a reaction to the '60s, which you know was kind of a revolutionary time, and you know music is usually a little bit louder, reflecting uh, the uh, the upheaval that was going on in the late '60s. And now there's like this um, backlash to that. Uh, uh, you know, everybody is closer to the ground. Uh, they're trying to live close to the earth, and uh, and they they don't want uh, all of this. Um, Uh, revolutionary excitement uh, in their life. And it seems that's part of why the singer songwriter uh, rises to prominence in the early seventies.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely correct.
1: Yeah. And you got to play all of that. So uh, then, then the, uh, you know, we, we can't bypass you working with Mr. Dylan, uh, a very special time, uh, especially with, uh, the film, uh, Pat Garrett, and Billy, the kid.
3: Well, you know, we could do hours on Bob Dylan and I. I, just,
1: I just, <laughs> Please go ahead. We can do hours. No, on I, just did a,
3: I just did a whole uh, a whole thing on that. We were asked to do these. uh, I guess they're podcasts. I don't know what they are, but anyway, I, I chose to to talk about playing on the album New Morning. So I did a.
1: Oh yeah, which also was around that same time. Yeah, that was. happened
3: first. Actually, I, I was. My Bob Dylan experience is, is pretty concise. I was asked to play to, I was in New York with Peter Asher working on a project. We had finished, he called me and he said, get your drums into a cab and go down to CBS studios. And, uh, and I said, why are we gonna record you? And he goes, no, you're gonna jam with George Harrison and Bob Dylan, they need a drum. They're going in the studio tonight <laughs> to play. So I, I did that, which was completely mind numbing to be a part of that. Al Cooper was there, um, Charlie Daniels, um, another guitar player named Ron Cornelius. And we just jammed. And we played, you know, of course, Dylan wanted to play nothing the Beatles songs and George wanted to play nothing the Dylan songs. So he ended up playing a lot of Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly. But... Oh, that was the middle ground. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> the other Kings. <laughs> yes. Anyway, but, you know, the thing, uh, being with Bob and George, they they were, uh, they, they were like brothers in a way they is it was easy for them to be around each other because they're both superstars you Mm -hmm. know and like they they they're like two brothers they they were just they loved being in each other's presence and and hamming it up and 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 playing music then after i did those sessions then bob johnson the producer asked me to come back to new york not too much longer after that maybe three months after that to record New, new morning i played on about half that record yeah, and uh, and it was just a great experience. And so, you know, some of the songs from that record are still some of my favorite songs: "A Man and Me" and sign on the Window." Really, like mm-hmm. all I got to play on. And, and then I was asked to come and, and be part of the, you know, the rhythm section to, to play on the score of Pat Garrett and the, the Kid. It was Jim Keltner and myself on drum, two double drums. And mm. it, you know, that's that's a pretty good double drum set. Yeah, it right is. There. Man. We were. We didn't do that much, really. It was a, it was a pretty big orchestra, and it was all orchestrated and everything. But we did do. There were some pieces in there that had a little bit more of a country feel to them, or western, mm-hmm. so to speak. But it was a great experience. Bob would he'd come into the to the stage every day, and he would he would he would walk around the orchestra around the wall, and come back to where the were gobos, um, in front of the two drum kits, and he would kind of put his guitar down and kneel down with Jim and I and light a cigarette and go. So what's up cats? You know,
0: <laughs> you know he,
3: that was a safe place to enter into. And then he would go into the, the control room and, you know, it was just a good, you know, listen, you know, was, ha- having this interview with you, I, I'm all of a sudden feeling incredibly guilty of all the great things that I got to do, you know, and, uh, uh, I can't, Oh, I, I can't, I,
1: you I, can't feel, feel guilty. I, I feel it's... How
3: fortunate I feel to have, you know, it's almost like I could, I could, you know, it's almost like I could say, you know, these are all dreams that I had. You know, I dreamt that I played with Bob Dylan and I dreamt that I played with Johnny Mitchell, but I know that I really did do it all. And uh and I'm just blessed. You know, I'm blessed to have had the opportunity to have those experiences.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh well, you know, again, it's um it's what you know and who you know. Uh, you know, Peter Asher keeps coming up and there's definitely a who you know uh, with, with Peter, especially when he came to L.A., uh, you know, he um, he did change some things and how uh, music was being made in in L.A., you know, probably learning from his days at
2: uh, Apple
1: Corps and, mm-hmm. and all of that. Uh, and, uh, you know, that uh, then, you know, leads to him uh, being a part of or signing, you know, just so many incredible uh, people uh you know and and again I, I you know i i hate to keep throwing them out there but you know i, I you know the the big names are, are, are you know the big sellers and uh you know james taylor bob dylan joni mitchell um uh, you know another big one for for peter was linda ronstadt and you got to play with her and and i i don't want to you you got to do a lot of, uh, of of stuff with her, including Get Closer, which is just a personal favorite of of mine. But recently, the she great
3: John Carroll in that song.
1: The John Carroll,
3: that's right, and I think you played on his album as well. I did, and he and he is he is married to my cousin, Margot. Oh my God, really? Vocal band, yeah. Well,
1: you didn't play on Afternoon Delight, did you? No. Okay. Okay. I played so. on a
3: subsequent
1: record of theirs. <laughs> Boy, talk about an earworm. Uh, <laughs> that may be the biggest earworm of all time uh, when you get right down to it. Um, but um, back to Linda, the The thing that I want to talk about is the recent Live in Hollywood, uh, both DVD and, and album. And And I think you are the drummer uh, along with Danny's playing guitar. Uh, I don't think Lee is, or or Waddy, or or on there. No, they're not. Bob but Bob and Bob, Bob is playing and bass, and right? More, yeah. Uh, and it's just so amazing that that did not come out when it was originally recorded. I think the the show was recorded at Universal Amphitheater uh, in 1980, if I remember right, and uh, it just has recently been unearthed. And, and put out, and let me tell you, uh, just within the c- community that I work in, when that thing showed up, people, their heads
3: exploded. It's so good. It's good. It really is good. I really enjoyed watching it.
1: It's And so, why
3: didn't that come out back in 1980? I think maybe because, you know, that album uh, and the, the the influence of, um, not, I don't want to say punk music, but like, um, new uh, wave. New wave. Yeah. Okay. Elvis Costello was a yeah. big influence on, on, on Linda and Peter at the time. And I think that they, they wanted her to be current. And so, uh, and I think, uh, you know, I think maybe putting, putting that live performance out, they might've thought was too much too soon. That would be a good question for Peter Asher. Of course. Yeah, yeah he, yeah, he yeah. might. He might say the label didn't want to put it out.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it is an incendiary performance uh, uh out there, and it just goes to show just what an amazing singer, uh, Linda was, uh, and you know why she deserves all the accolades that
3: uh, that she has garnered over the years. Absolutely, yeah, powerhouse.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think you uh now of course you know Linda um uh, famously has parkinsons uh, uh and uh, she's unable to perform uh which is just got to be devastating. Um, um you know my heart really just goes out to her as a singer myself to imagine that that thing that it, not me but she was certainly born to do and being unable to do that ever again. But you uh, it, you know, is there a specialty that you're the guy that gets called? You know, as a as opposed to uh, um, uh, you know um, another drummer. Is, you know, is 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 there the reason the phone rings for you?
0: Yeah.
3: In general. Oh God, I don't you know? know. I don't know. Maybe I'm uh, uh, easy to get along with.
1: <laughs> that certainly helps. Uh, and and you know that's that's not a bad place to go. Uh, again, talking to so many of um uh, especially the more session oriented uh, musicians with long uh, cVs, that's a huge thing uh, to 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 have is that you know that you're it's not a rock star job. It's not, you know, you're not going to go in and, you know, let's all just sit around the piano and figure something out. And, you know, this is, this is more, you know, as you said, you're closer to the hot dog vendor than, <laughs> than you are to a sports star uh, out there. So, you know, being able to get along is gotta be a, a, a huge factor for not just you, but all of these guys that, that have that long career.
3: You know, I think maybe a good answer to your question is, you know, uh, t- to me, the formula to success is to find out what's needed and wanted and mm-hmm. produce or presented. And I think that's what I've tried mm-hmm. to do my whole career.
1: Mm-hmm. So is there, is there a, 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 a particular artist or two that just when when you see the phone call and you see the caller ID, you go, oh, man, I'm so excited or does it really not matter?
3: Oh, I'm, 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 look, the, there's a long list that I would be excited about, you know, uh, and I'm sure there's a list that I wouldn't be that excited about. That well. shall
1: remain <laughs> nameless. Yes. <laughs> but,
3: um, but, you know, I look, it's almost a moot point now because uh, it's sad that I don't know if those opportunities will ever come up
1: again. Given, given our current situation. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. in a weird way, it's you're you're experiencing the life that Linda has had to experience for the last 10
3: years. Yeah. Everyone, everyone went into forced yeah. retirement. It's crazy. And, but, you know, it, but in a way, I mean, look, I'm very excited about the immediate it. family. Uh, yeah, immediate family. This, this is this is something that has been it's long overdue. That's, you know, and I don't know how long we're going to be able to do it. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing we can do this for five years. Mm. That would be really fun. Uh, you know, we're yeah. all in our seventies, yeah. let's be real, you know, the window of opportunity is, 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 has a little crack left in it, but we're having so much fun doing it. And what we're doing is really, really good, basic yeah. rock and roll, you know, so, and we're having fun doing it. And so that, that, I'm um, you know, I. I would be sad if we can't take this to where we want to take it. And the goal would be, I would, I would love a lot of people to be able to hear it and really enjoy it. And if we can make some, or some team coin along the yeah. way, all the better, but you know, that I, I would hope for that, but I just don't know if we're going to be, I don't know if that's going to be a case, you know, I just think we're, you know, it's going to be a new kind of normal. If, you know, sometimes when I'm thinking about these things, I look back and I go, Okay. When Danny and Lee and I and Wadi played with James Taylor, you know, the times that I the times that I recorded with James Taylor and the time tours that I did live with him, those are iconic pieces. Those are those are those are albums that are are, yeah. are part of history that, that affected a lot of people and tours that were really important. And I, he, James has a different band now. He has a really incredible band uh, of, of amazing musicians. He, he's playing the same songs, but they're played differently. They're played differently mm-hmm. than we played them. They're played great. And it's his, his experience is absolutely magnificent. I don't long for doing that. In other words, if James called me and asked me to play with him, and he has, I I, will do, I drop everything I'm doing and I right. do for him because I love him. I love to do it. But... I would never trade what I've already done for what I could do with him. In other words, what the music that I've already played with him, that's like, that's yeah. already in the bank. I'm, if That's where it ends. I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely happy about that. And I feel that I feel that way about everything that I've got to do. I mean, you know, I, I got to play with Bob Dylan on those things and, you know, I never played with him since that's okay. Mm-hmm. I got to be on those. That mm-hmm. That was enough. You know, I got to play with Jackson Brown on "Running on Empty" and, and various different other albums. That was enough. Well,
1: you brought it up, you know? so we're going to go there because, to me, that's the it's pretty much the section that is on "Running on Empty." In fact, I believe that is your drum set it that is. is on the cover of the album. Uh, and uh, you know, that's to, it's like it's one of the greatest live albums that you don't really know is a is a live album. It just and, and the whole point of the album of the touring band and everything that goes along with it, it's just so iconic for rock and roll. And you know, you were a, a big part of that. Uh that must have been I I, I I i i don't know if you would call that, but but to me, it seems like a crowning achievement is that album and and i say that maybe with bias because i was at the the nam uh tech awards uh show when jackson was given uh the award and you guys reformed to play i i believe it was three songs uh from the album it may have been two but i my my head literally exploded that i was in that room to be able to see something that had was a recreation of what I think is one of the greatest
3: live albums. Well, it was really fun. we had the, we had the great uh, singers from the band Venice with us and Rosemary. That's it.
1: right. Yeah. They did the opening. It was, bit. It yeah, was, man. It
3: was spectacular.
1: Really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, I'd, I'd like to get a, expand a little bit on running on empty because it just was uh, that, that it's like the, Calming together of all these piece parts that you had been a part of into this thing that now is like that document that uh, again will live you know
3: for hundreds of years oh god hey, where do where do you start it's, it's, <laughs>
1: i know i'm throwing a lot on yeah, your I know, I know.
3: <laughs> should we finish this tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. uh it was an amazing experience. And if you look at the, if the photographs on the, uh, on the liner notes, you know, that that, that were taken by Joel Bernstein are, are pretty much tell the story. You know, we're a family, yeah. we, were, we were a family on the road, doing all the crazy things that road families do during that period of time. And and we were, you know, making a, you know, recording every show you know? Yeah, and, yeah. um, um somewhere along the line, Jackson gives me credit for saying to him, and I I went down to the studio while they were mixing. And I don't know why I said it, I maybe I maybe I've just been smoking too much. But I said, you know, why don't you Why don't because we were on that on those shows, we recorded lots of other songs. I mean, the sets consisted of, you know, other Jackson Brown songs. Yeah, yeah. And I and at some point I suggested to him, I said, Why don't you why don't you make this a live album of all new material? And somehow that re- resonated with him and he, that's, he did it. Yeah.
1: With that. And that was the highly unusual piece. It was all original material. I think uh, there's a, you, you guys do cocaine. Right. Uh, uh, but other than that, it's yeah. all uh, original Jackson Brown pen uh, uh, songs. Um so I understand that you uh, also uh, program drum machines, uh, and you've been doing that for a long time. But did did you do that out of self preservation when those things started to arrive? You know,
3: I've I tried to embrace. You know, I've had a, I have had a studio in my house forever. You know, I, I have a very small one now, but uh, I, I try to embrace all the technology. You know, my yeah. son's a great audio engineer, and uh, you know, Grammy winning, you know, Emmy winning engineer. Wow. Nice. Um, you know, he, you know, he's kind of my go-to for that kind of stuff. I want to learn about something, but, but uh, I just embraced all the technology. So when drum machines came out, I, you know, I figured if you can't, if you can't beat them, join them.
0: <laughs>
3: right. So yeah. So I, yeah. you know, just. It's just part of it. You know, I, it's part
1: of the gig. It's as, as, as so, so you might say that to somebody who is, uh, you know, following in your footsteps that, uh, you know, embrace the technology, uh, that comes along, um, and make yourself useful, uh, so that you can add to, uh, getting the phone calls uh, for these gigs.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, my, my advice to, uh, to anybody coming along, wanting to do, do what I do is basically, I, I feel the same way that Dave Grohl does. You know, if you want to, if you want to do this, find some people that are serious about you are and go into a garage and and never stop playing, Mm -hmm. play as much as you possibly can together. You know, yeah. When when, when you can't get together, go into your room and program drum machines and learn, uh, learn how to play other instruments, you know, Mm -hmm. learn as much as you can, you know, write songs, write songs, play instruments, but play with other people. That's, what's important. That's how you learn to be a real musician.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can't do it in your bedroom. Uh, you know, you can, you know, these days you can do a lot in your bedroom, but it is, you know, truly to be a musician, you need to interact with other musicians.
3: Absolutely. Is your point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, you know, uh, you guys have a new song that's getting ready to drop called Cruel Twist. Right. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, that's a song that I think Danny wrote with a guy named Char. Well, Charlie Carp sang it. He might have, with Charlie Carp and Harvey Brooks, maybe. He wrote that song with. And uh, uh, it's a great shuffle. It's a blue shuffle. And uh, we just finished a video that's going to come out for it. Um,
1: we're on uh, a appropriately social-distanced video, I would assume.
3: Came out really good. Yeah, we all shot our own footage, but we got it to a good editor. So.
1: Oh, good, good. Because you know, I I did see you guys uh, do a, a wonderful, uh, a socially distance uh, version of Werewolves of London. Okay. Uh, which you you did get to play on a lot of warren's uh uh stuff i don't think you play on that song no that's did, that's uh,
3: completely on that song yeah
1: it's mick and and uh, john mcvee i think right. are yeah are playing on that particular thing and i think that just started off as a jam one night and then turned and, and i think it was waddy's idea if i remember right
3: actually actually i don't know if it was a jam and waddy could probably attest to that better but yeah but he they had tried to cut that song with a lot of different rhythm sections and uh and and that what was Waddy's idea to say let me get Mick and John over here and that was that was the one and it worked out
1: yeah yeah pretty crazy so that uh the when when does the uh, the first uh, single uh June 12th. June 12th June 12th on okay. Pro Valley Records that's right that's right so what is your current kit uh, for our gearheads out there
3: um DW Okay. Uh, it is called a contemporary classic kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a 23 inch kick drum, 10, 12, 13 inch rack toms, 14 inch, 16 inch floor toms, Peisty cymbals, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 inch ride, 14 inch hi hats. Fantastic drum kit that my dear friend John Good made for me. It's absolutely brilliant. Ah, it's um, they DW has a a line that they make called the classic line, which go mm-hmm. mm-hmm. back to the '60s Ludwig and Gretsch drum kits from the '60s. Yep, yep. They're, they're they're made of poplar in the center and mahogany inside and outside. Ah, oh, okay. And so uh, that's where they get that really warm sound. And so this is a this is a takeoff of that, except that they made the they made that one eighth inch piece of poplar that's a little bit hard to deal with. They made that that into very small different laminates, different thicknesses, very small thicknesses, but kept it in the middle. And these drums are that's why they call them a contemporary classic. They're just a little punchier, but they still have that dark dark tone to them.
1: Very nice. Is there any kind of a, a warm-up ritual that you do before you play? And is it different in, between the studio and, uh, and live?
3: With the studio, I don't warm up too much. Uh, I mean, just, you know, maybe just, you know, making sure you, you do a drum check if it's long enough. That, that's plenty of a warm-up for anybody. But, but uh, live, I just, I, just, I just loosen up my hands on a practice pad. I just go through yeah. basic rudiments. Yeah. And then hit the stage. Hit it, baby.
1: all right so what is the latest news on the upcoming immediate family documentary i know production has stopped uh there has been talk uh from uh, governor gavin Newsom of, of, of reopening up production i would i would assume that once that happens you guys will uh will uh be able to uh resume filming and how do you feel about that uh you know the, the engagement and going outside. I would
3: assume you are
1: probably socially distancing uh, pretty heavily.
3: Oh yeah, we all are. We're really excited about uh, about D- Denny and the, and uh, and the boys getting back on, to work on the documentary. We're we're just honored and really excited to have you know have it being done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think all of the funding is pretty much in place. I think they have to find a distributor now, and they got some some people that are interested. Um, uh, they kind of work on a skeleton crew anyway Mm -hmm. for these documentaries. So, uh, I think they're going to, they're, uh, they were talking about maybe doing some, some of these kind of interviews with the other people that they need to interview. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think they're just chomping at the bit to get back to work on it. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, Well, thinking about next year will be, uh, we want to try to release the, our new record of, of new material, which "Cruel Twist" is
1: not part of. On oh, it's not on it's, okay. not on.
3: it's not on the new record.
1: Uh-huh. Uh huh. But uh,
3: we have uh, we're really excited about that. It came out really great, and we were able during this time we had that in the can, so we were able to have that mixed during this lockdown period of time. And so we're thinking that early next year, hopefully by the spring, when the documentary is done, we'll release the documentary and release the album, and then. What we wanted to be able to do is go and tour behind both of them. So that's the that's the golden plan. Whether we're going to be able to do it or not, we don't know.
1: Yeah, nobody does. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is a uh, uh, just there is no crystal ball, uh, no. and uh, uh, it's you know um, I, I can't imagine you know your you know your your livelihood is is just you know, like you said, forced retirement. Um, You know, for me, uh, it hasn't changed at all. In fact, I've gotten nothing but busier uh, because, uh, you know, uh, not not that I, well, I, I will say I had a bit of a crystal ball about five years ago. I said, whatever I do, it has to be internet focused yeah. because that is the future. That I knew that the digital space was was the future, and what I w- was going to get involved in had to be based ar- around that. Uh, not knowing that you know a pandemic would arrive, and uh, you know that uh, you know everything we do is done remotely and digitally, and so you know our our world didn't stop one iota. Uh, and unfortunately others did. And some of the things that we incredibly love, uh, you know, our entire being is about music and whether we talk about it or you are out there playing it. So uh, Russ Conkle, thanks so much for being on Deeper Digs with us today. And, and gosh, I really hope we can get on the other side of this uh, thing and get you guys back out
3: Christian, I have to tell you, um, I, this has been a real honor for me, and I have to say that I really feel like I have a new friend.
1: You definitely have a new friend, and uh, once uh, once we can get back out on the road, I will be at the show. We'll uh, we'll have a good time.
3: We'll take good care of you, man.
1: Big round of applause for Russ joining us today. Such a gentleman and a scholar, as they say. I cannot wait to see these guys live and in person. Uh, We just got to get on the other side of this COVID mess. Please do your part. (laughs) I beg of you, do the right thing to help mitigate this disease. Do it for you, for those around you. Do it because if you do, we will get live music back into this country sooner than later. Okay. Oh, and yes, um, Russ has been on a lot of the same records uh, as the other guys. Um, (laughs) I decided to mix things up with each of them. Um, I didn't want to cover the same old ground. So, uh, you know, if you say, well,
2: why didn't you talk about uh,
1: Warren Zevon? A perfect example. Because they all worked with Warren Zevon. And, you know, I kind of had to pick and choose because they all have giant discographies um so i hope you forgive me if we missed some things uh in there uh i just kind of mix it around and once you get all uh, five of the guys uh their 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 conversations you'll, you'll see that uh, we we covered uh, quite a bit of ground with with each of them so most importantly um get to know russ and all the guys from the immediate family If you're unfamiliar with them Uh, All of them are on the socials uh, And of course their Facebook is Immed family Immed family I-M-M-E-D family So Facebook backslash Immed family I think that's a joke knowing them Uh, Go join and keep track These guys are going to be out on the road soon enough They've done a few uh, pay-per-view events as well um, so keep that in mind uh, keep keep we'll, we'll, we'll try to remind you when uh, when that uh, happens again. All right, let me leave everyone with um, uh, kind of a sad thought, kind of a a concerning uh, thought. Um, one year ago our our sound engineer uh, Jerry Danielson lost his wife Angela to to cancer and I've been thinking about him um, anniversaries are hard, uh, especially anniversaries like this. Um, they were a perfect couple. And while Angela fought like a champion, you know, in the end, she couldn't beat it and and, and lost the battle um, one year ago. And uh, I bring this up because in 1997, Russ Kunkel lost his wife, Nicolette Larson, suddenly to um, cerebral edema. Um, I did have a question uh, teed up about this event Knowing, you know, how life-altering it is But I decided in the end not to go there But it got me thinking Um, You know, we all experience loss and tragedy sometime in our lives And usually an artist that does so ends up finding solace in their art I'm sure after some time of healing, Russ did And I'm sure um, in time, Jerry will as well Uh, Jerry, I know, is in some ways already healing. So nobody need worry about him um, so much as, you know, other than, you know, keeping him in your thoughts. Um, You know, I bet you're thinking about him right now. So, okay, just short and sweet. Just something I just wanted to say next week. Coincidentally, I'll have one of our newest Pantheon hosts with us and one who has worked with this week's guest, Russ Kunkel, our very own Jesse Colin Young, uh, he of the Youngbloods uh, and his very long solo career uh, will be with us. Uh, by the way, this really was a coincidence, uh, but come on, uh, Russ has played with everyone, so it's no surprise and he's on a Jesse Colin Young uh, album. So, come on back for that next week. Jesse Colin Young, Tripping on My Roots. We'll talk about his life, uh, the Young Bloods, you know, growing up in the village. Uh, just what an amazing career and what an amazing guy he is. We're so excited to have his podcast, Tripping on My Roots, uh, on the Pantheon Network. All right. Until then, y'all know what to do. Keep up the
2: rocking.
0: Sitting in a park in Paris, France.
3: Reading the news and it sure looks bad. They won't give peace a chance. That was just
0: a dream some of us had. Still a lot of lines to see. But I wouldn't want to stay here. It's too old and cold and settled in its ways here. All oh, the California, California, coming home.
2: I'm going to see the folks I dig. I'll even kiss a sunset peak,
0: California I'm coming home. Deeper Digs is hosted by Christian Swain. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Farioli, Sound designed by Busy Signal Studios. Engineered by Jerry Danielson, Christy O'Donnell, and Leslie Barker. Find all of our shows, notes, and social links at pantheonpodcast.com. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found used in this podcast for purchase or streaming, wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks.